This episode is presented by MyBookie.ag. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the MMA meeting. Let's talk with the Weasel Podcast, where we talk all things MMA. And I hope you guys are having an amazing day. Now, UFC 243 wrapped up last weekend, and the media interviews, all that stuff that came after that fight, are pretty interesting. So, Robert Whitaker, you know, took the loss pretty well, but he did say that he thought he was doing pretty well up until he got caught. He makes it seem like he just got caught after winning the fight, which is not exactly what happened. So, hopefully, he looked back at it and understood his mistakes Adesanya was actually the one that was in control. Yes, Whitaker was being aggressive, but he wasn't in control. A lot of people mix up the two. A lot of people think aggression and just constantly moving forward to attack is the same thing as controlling a fight. That is not true all the time, especially when you're fighting guys like Adesanya, Anderson Silva, Wonderboy Thompson, Dominic Cruz. A lot of these other fighters, they are the, actually the ones that are in control if you keep marching down at them and blitzing at them when they're counter strikers or they're snipers or they're very elusive and that's what was going on it wasn't that Whitaker was in control like he thought he was Adesanya was reading him like a book and it was pretty simplistic like I said in my breakdown if you haven't checked that out and it was pretty interesting to hear that Whitaker said he could have wrestled but he didn't think like he needed to so his thought that he was winning the fight to doing pretty well probably gave him that sense of security or confidence that he didn't need the extra wrestling or the extra striking or the extra angles or whatever it was he thought he was actually tagging Adesanya he said I was tagging him which he really wasn't the only things he was really tagging him with was when Adesanya moved forward on him and he intercept him with a jab or those psychics to the knee sometimes landed, but they weren't anything too crazy. Adesanya just put on a masterclass performance, and he looked like a world beater out there. From the walkout, to the fight, to the confidence, to like the whole energy around him in that fight looked like he's probably the next star. Chilson has said it perfectly, man. So there are three things for a fighter to be like a star or pick up that kind of notoriety, and that is the walkout, the performance in the cage, and then like the interview afterward. And almost all fighters do not get all three. I think the only one that really gets all three is like Conor McGregor. And I wouldn't even say his walkout is on the level of Adesanya's. I mean, Adesanya has great entrances, stellar and replayable performances. That's what you want in a fighter. And then he crushes it on the mic afterward. It's not just the performance that's going to be replayable for the fans. If the fans want to actually replay the whole experience, starting from the walkout all the way to the interview afterward, that is someone that's special, right? If you can get fans to do that, get fans to want to watch your walkout, want to watch the entire spectacle out there, the entire entertainment aspect, rather than just the fight. Usually it's just the fight when you watch guys like Robbie Lawler, Tony Ferguson, Frank. Zaganu, etc. You just want to watch their performances. You kind of skip ahead on their entrances when you replay the event or replay the fight. For Adesanya, you want to start at the beginning and you want to finish it until the interview's over. That is special. That is someone who attracts the fans around him rather than just the performance of what he did out there. It transcends his abilities. It transcends what is usual for a fighter. So Adesanya gets all three where most fighters get one or two. Very rare for them to get two of those things right. Two of those things that stick on fans' minds. And Adesanya has all of them. It seems like it's all coming pretty natural to him. And it's crazy because he was in the world of kickboxing for a very long time. Came into MMA at a much older age than usual fighters get into it. Gets into the UFC years later and then becomes a champion in a year and nine months. And now it was talked about as the next big thing, right? The only guy that did it this quickly, I think, was Cody Garbrandt, right? Cody Garbrandt was undefeated, became the champion, dethroned one of the greatest bantamweights of all time. And he was instantly looked at as the next big star of the sport. And actually, I think he did it quicker than Adesanya. Um, actually around the same time, so Garbrandt was 6-0, and he started the UFC in January 3 of 2015, and he became champion in December 30 of 2016. So uh, yeah, Adesanya actually did it quicker than Cody Garbrandt, which is even more impressive. But the thing that knocked Cody Garbrandt off of everybody's list as the next big star is something that Adesanya doesn't suffer from, and that is, you know, the fight IQ stuff, the decisions, and the actual performances. Adesanya is a genius when it comes to fighting. So it's going to be pretty hard to get the better of him, right? And when we talk about Whitaker, man, he understands he's not going to get a rematch. He technically didn't defend his belt, but he did have a win after becoming champion against Yoel Romero in the rematch, but it wasn't his fault. Romero missed weight. It's crazy how it doesn't count as a title defense, but I don't really care what they counted as. We all know what happened. Um, I still think Romero won, so it gets a little bit more murky. But also, it wasn't even close. Whitaker wasn't really getting anything off. He wasn't really being effective, and he gets knocked out pretty badly. He gets knocked out twice, practically. If there was no rounds, imagine if there was no rounds. He would have been finished at the five-minute mark of a fight, and he gets knocked out again. So, yeah, Adesanya was heads and shoulders above Whitaker in this kind of contest, and I really wonder how Whitaker's going to show up against these other contenders, because now he's still going to be fighting the top guys, even when he was a champion, you know, the same guys he's going to be fighting. So he's going to be fighting Jared Cannonier, Kelvin Gaslam that was scheduled before, probably there until if he beats Kelvin Gaslam. 
Maybe a Romero rubber match. You never know. And we're going to see how he does against those guys as not the champion. He's probably going to be a main event or like co-main event on a big card. So he's probably still going to get those five round experiences. But the confidence of not being champion, like the impact of losing a contest at this fashion, at that grand of stage, biggest attendance in UFC history in his home country, we'll see what it does to his confidence out there. We won't know until we see his next fight. We can speculate all we want. He does seem like a guy that won't suffer from that kind of loss, but we have no idea, man. We've seen it plenty of times already that some fighters, when they lose, they are never the same again. And some people are speculating after this fight that the Romero fights destroyed Whitaker's chin. Here's the thing, man. The logic answer to it is those fights had to have done something to Whitaker. It's not like he came out of those fights clear-headed. You know what I'm saying? He got battered in that last one. He got dropped, concussed probably multiple times. And in the first fight, he got connected a couple times as well. And we're talking about a guy against Romero. So yes, 100% he took a lot of damage in those fights. Would it have made a difference if he never fought Romero? Would it have made a difference fighting Israel Adesanya? We don't know, but I don't think so, man. Because it wasn't like the chin was the downfall of Whitaker in that fight. That's not really what it was. He was getting caught clean. It was the technical approach of Whitaker meeting the technical approach of Adesanya, and Adesanya was ahead. That's pretty much all it was. Yes, maybe if he didn't fight Romero, he probably could have taken that punch in the first round and not fallen from it, maybe stunned a little bit. But eventually, the way that fight was playing out, and I know a lot of you fans, you were tweeting me even during the fight that you guys were saying that Whitaker was going to lose if he keeps fighting the way he is. That seemed to be the thing. Eventually, he was going to get caught, whether it be the first, second, third, fourth, fifth round, whatever it is. Adesanya has cardio. He paces himself very well. He wasn't gassing himself out at all. The pace he was fighting at seemed like he could have fought 10 rounds like that. And eventually, he would have caught Whitaker. So I don't think the chin mattered. I don't think the damage mattered too much. But yeah, I'm really curious to see how Whitaker fights in his next fight because it's really going to answer all the questions about him coming after this fight. And as for Adesanya, now I want to just say the video I made about Adesanya being too focused on John Jones, completely wrong. Completely wrong. I'll admit it, man. When I'm wrong, I'll admit it. I'll put my opinions out there. I'll put my speculations out there. It's really just to create a discussion. You know, that's when I make those kind of videos to really create a discussion and see what everybody thinks and, and have some fun out of it, right? As people who know me, I do like forms of debating. I do like sharing ideas and it makes the whole community a lot more fun. And I'll admit I'm wrong. I look at comments all the time. I saw the comments. You guys are 100% right. Adesanya was not too focused on John Jones. And frankly, after this fight, it looks like Jones is focused on Adesanya. You know, he's constantly tweeting about him, consistently going after Adesanya. And Adesanya is trying not to talk too much about Jones. And I could just see a few of those comments coming out saying, oh, now he thinks Jones is too focused on Adesanya. No, no, I don't think that. I'm just kind of playing with it. And another difference here is Jones doesn't have an opponent. And Adesanya is a big opponent for him and probably favorable in Jones' eyes. Jones is a smart guy. You know, he analyzes everybody. Going up to heavyweight is going to be harder for him. Adesanya seems to be the next big star. And I think Jones sees that as well, whether he wants to admit it or not and he said he's gonna be fighting the contenders next and eventually one day in the future fight jones and he also said jones is pretty uh jealous of him and stuff like that whatever it is i really don't know why jones keeps going after him it's obviously he wants to fight adesanya but i don't know why why now maybe he wants to beat the guy before he gets like way too good maybe get some of those championship experiences uh defends his belt a few times out there and becomes a handful for jones because right now I do think Jones kind of dominates Adesanya. It's just a bad fight stylistically and including all of those attributes. It's a tough fight for Adesanya, man. It really is. I love Adesanya. I actually enjoy watching him more than I do enjoy watching Jones fights. But putting my analysis hat on, I really can't see Adesanya beating Jones. It's way too early right now to even think about that kind of fight. But we'll see if Adesanya is going to be the next star. I hope so, man. He checks off all the boxes, man. He's great for the new age of fighting. He's really good for the millennial era of uh, fans. The whole uh, anime stuff, video game stuff, his whole persona, the way he talks like kind of trendy. It really gravitates toward those uh, those younger fans, you know, the early 20s, maybe mid 20s, late teens, possibly even, you know, Gen Z, if that's what, if that's what it's considered. Um, people around my age, you know, they're really going to like Adesanya. And even in my circle, even people I know, my friends and my family, they actually talk about him. And they really like the way he fights. Even some friends I know that really aren't into MMA, they like this guy. And actually, what's crazy is some of them didn't even watch the fight. They watched the entrance. Because I think on BT Sports on YouTube, they have the entrance up there. And it has like over a million views already. And some of my friends are showing me the entrance. Rather than the fight, they love it. Like, they love the whole spectacle. And once you can get people on board just from your entrance, you know this guy's going to be pretty special, especially if he keeps performing the way he is. 
I mean, he's 18 and 0. He has the second best record in the UFC right now, right behind Khabib, which tells you how crazy 28 and 0 is. Imagine Adesanya winning 10 more fights. I understand he got in the UFC earlier than Khabib did. So it's going to be a rougher patch for him. And he became champion in his 18th fight while Khabib became the champion, I think, in his 26th fight. So yeah, that is a little bit different. But now it's going to get harder for Adesanya. Now it's really going to be tough because we all know it. All the hardcore fans know it. Keeping the belt is a lot harder than winning it. Staying as a champion is infinitely times harder than becoming the champion. And there's a lot of factors why. And most of it is mental. That's a lot of people don't say out there. Mostly because of the mental stresses. Mostly because you have a target on your back at all times. The training camps are different. The vibe is different. The energy is going to be a little bit different. Because you're defending your throne. Rather than seeking for fights or just taking fights on the on the go, you have a list of opponents that are coming up your way. And now you're always focused on the next contender, the next contender. And this is what GSP was saying before he retired or uh, took a hiatus or whatever it was. That the mental stress of staying as a champion and constantly fighting contenders after contenders for years on end, nine title defenses, took its toll, man. And he was thinking even before the Carlos Condit fight that he might retire. And we can even look at other fighters like Rose Namajunas, who a lot of people know about her uh, mental state coming into fights, probably won't be able to handle them like a GSP can or some other fighters Habib can. It breaks people to the point where Rose seemed like she didn't even care that she lost her belt. Because of all the stress that came with it. But when you're the contender, you're always focused on like, I want to be the champion. I want to be the champion. Even Rose, I want to be the champion. I'm the best in the world. All that stuff. And once she won it, yes, she felt like she was the best in the world. But now new stresses that she didn't expect came into her life. GSP, same thing. GSP was laser focused on winning the belt, beating Matt Hughes, all that stuff. He was begging on his knees to fight Matt Hughes when he was the contender. And it got to the point where he just didn't want it anymore. You see how it changes fighters? From begging on your knees for a title shot to wanting to retire and don't want the belt anymore. So we'll see. I think Adesanya is going to be pretty well, though, as a champion. If he could keep winning, he has a good mindset. He's already thinking about all the contenders in line. He's thinking about going up eventually later in his career. You know, he's having his whole career planned out. Oh, and I just want to say, for some reason that I said planned out, I know this isn't the most important thing, but uh, it just came to my mind that, you know, a lot of people say that Mike Tyson said everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth or whatever he said, punched in the face. It's actually not Mike Tyson's quote, if uh, people know. I think Joe Lewis actually was the first one that said that. And Mike Tyson said after that, and now, you know, everyone's going on with it. I don't know, just something uh, came into my mind. And what is this going on? So, Ioana Young Jacek is having troubles with weight cutting. So it seems like she might not be able to cut the weight, might be able to only make 116, which is good for weight cutting, but she's just going to try to get there. But she told the UFC a week ago that she probably won't make weight. And Michelle Waterson, and that's new for Ioana. She's always had a hard time cutting 115, but I don't think she's ever told the UFC ahead or her manager or something, told the UFC ahead that she's going to have a hard time cutting the weight. But what also is pretty new about Ioana is the procedure she had. So... Do they correlate? She always had a hard time cutting the 115. She had this breast implant procedure. Some people say it's not much. I'm not memeing or anything. I'm not joking around, um, even though it could sound like it. And also, I'm not a doctor. How much weight will it actually add on? I mean, that takes a factor into weight cutting. Like, seriously, it does. Any added pound can impact a weight cut because they always say the last like two, three pounds are like you're on death's door and adding on to the end of that weight cut. And also she did gain some muscle and stuff. So that could also be a factor as well. Moving up at 125. But it is very logical to say that perhaps getting that breast implant is going to add some more weight to make it a tougher cut for Ioana. And people say she didn't add that much. But here's the thing. I mean, I don't know how, how I should say it. So she went from the absolute minimum to actually something that's quite visible. Even though after the procedure, it looks like, oh, it's not a big thing. She had like nothing to begin with. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's a reason why she got it, right? So a pound, even two pounds, whatever it is, three pounds, if you add it all, that can make a big difference. And we're talking about 115. 115 pounders have the hardest time cutting weight, especially women. Women have a harder time cutting weight than men do. And 115 pounders have a harder time cutting weight than any other weight class because it's lower. It's by body percentage weight percentage. Them cutting 20 pounds is a lot harder than a heavyweight cutting 20 pounds because it's not much of their body weight when you consider a heavyweight fighter like a Francis Agano or something, right? Adding on two, three pounds, whatever it is, on Ioana, going from, let's say, 127 to 130, that's going to make a bit of a difference on those last several pounds to cut weight. It's really going to make a huge difference. And now Ioana is actually saying that there's nothing to really worry about. She's going to cut the weight, all that stuff. Everybody just weigh because the weigh-ins are not today. She said this yesterday. She said the weigh-ins are not today. They're going to be Friday. So wait for that day and then you'll see. Hopefully that's the truth because Ioana has said many weird things in the past. She always seems so sure of herself, even beating roles in the second fight. You know, like 
a lot of things, you know, the excuses in the first fight. Ever since those fights, people really don't take what she says seriously. And it always seems like wishful thinking or she's just confident that she'll probably make it, but she doesn't know for sure. Hopefully she makes it. I don't want to see the main event get knocked off this card. And Michelle Waterson, at first it was reported that she wouldn't take any fight. She wouldn't take a cash weight, and she will not take a replacement. She came out afterward and said that she is willing to fight Ioana in a catch weight bout. But she never said anything about a replacement up to my knowledge. If I'm wrong, make sure to correct me on that. It seems like she never said she'll take a replacement fight like a Mackenzie Dern or Amanda Ribas, who are also on the card that they're offering as a replacement, just in case. And we all know Mackenzie Dern also has a hard time cutting weight, so it's going to be tough for Watterson. And if that's true, she's not going to take a catch weight and she's not going to take a replacement. Let's just say that's true what the initial reports show, whether it be her manager that doesn't want to take it or whatever, someone's going to advise her. Why not just negotiate? Why not just take 30%? Why not just say, I'll take this fight, I'll take a replacement, but I need a title shot right afterward? Like, something like that, you know? This can all play in the palms of your hands instead of just saying, I'm not fighting anybody and just taking the show money. I understand. I can respect it to a point because you're going to make the weight. You want to fight. You want to fight. You want to. You want to fight her at the contracted weight. But I know some fans are going to lose some respect if she just takes nobody. If she just leaves this event because it's not by the contract. So actually think about it. Business Weasel now. This is the main event of a car that really needs some talent. They really need a main event. They cannot afford to lose it. Right? The next fight is Cup Swanson versus Cron Gracie, which is a great fight, obviously. It can possibly main event this card. But if that bumps up, to the main event that every other fight on the card also bumps up. The card looks so weak. You could deem it as probably the worst UFC event of all time. So, Ioana is going to make more money than Michelle Watterson. Absolutely. So, taking 30% of Ioana's money is going to be like half of what Michelle Watterson is going to be making. Right? So, if Michelle Watterson gets her show, wins the fight, and gets 30% of Ioana, I mean, you just got paid. So this all turned out to your benefit. You could possibly work for a title shot. You have so much leverage coming off this card because the card really can't afford to lose this main event. And the stigma of losing main events always does cards really badly. So Michelle Watterson has a lot of leverage here. She can demand for a title shot. She can ask for 30%, 40%. She can ask for so many things. But if she just goes and says, I'm out, I'm not fighting anybody because of whatever it is. I mean, I could just hear Chill Sonnen right now. What a great opportunity for the Karate Hottie. You're facing the former champion. She's possibly going to be missing weight. You have a leverage over the organization because of this. You could demand for a title shot. You could demand for more money. You could demand for whatever you want. But Michelle, you're just going to walk away from the table? Guys, I cannot stress you enough how many of these fighters just don't understand the business side of the game. When opportunities present themselves, they always shoot themselves in the foot and I don't understand it. Oh, and by the way, if you walk away from the table, Ioana is still the former champion. She still has a claim, at least to fight for the belt. Unless the Karate Hottie wants to go and fight whoever for whatever contendership for the average pay. Okay, great. I don't want to hear any complaints about how you don't get the opportunity, how you don't get a title shot, because you aren't doing the organization any favors, and you're not doing yourself any favors. And then he'll say something like, uh, where does Kevin Lee fit into it or something like that. So, And I wanted to address just one thing. I mentioned it a while ago in one of my earlier podcasts. And I think some of you guys who have been here long enough uh, probably watched it or at least heard this segment of it. But I talk about predictions in MMA. And I know a lot of you guys, especially the hardcore fans that really understand the sport and have been watching for a pretty long time. Or just the new fans who are knowledgeable. They understand the sport right away. Predictions in MMA is extremely hard and it seems like a lot of people whenever someone gets a prediction wrong everyone wants a bag on them everyone wants to say they're terrible at predictions all that stuff i've gotten it chill sutton's gotten it in the past he was like a meme for it kenny florian's a meme for it everyone who's predicted fights has been knocked as someone who is terrible at predictions there is no one at least i know of that consistently puts out predictions and everybody thinks they're good at predictions everyone who i've seen has been knocked on for their predictions every single person from brendan Schaub to jill sonnet to kenny florian to demetrius johnson to coaches i mean there's just so many people and they're all knocked for their predictions which tells you one thing it's very hard to predict a sport that's unpredictable in nature right? Fighting is very unpredictable. A lot of people like to say that's 50-50, and most of the time they're right. Anyone can win on any given night. We've seen it many times. Upsets happen all the time. There was that card a few weeks ago where, like, every fight was an upset. Predictions just really make it fun, and the unpredictability of it actually makes it a lot more rewarding because 
Upsets happen more often in this sport than any other sport. And there's a reason why predicting this sport is so hard. There's a lot of variables involved. X factors that we don't know of. Injuries in training camp. How are they training? What is their focus on? Are they healthy? Are they mentally healthy? Did their mom get sick? Did their dog die? Did something happen in the training camp that's messing with them mentally? Are they more mentally unstable than we know of? What is their game plan? Is it the right game plan? How many training partners do they have? There's so many things involved into fighting that are a lot more important than the actual fight and their technique. The mental side of the game is way more important than the physical. That in itself makes it so hard to predict because we have so many information we don't know. And all of that information is the information that counts. Those are the important information and that's what we don't know. We just know what they did in their previous fights and fighters don't always fight the same way. So in my recent video, I did get knocked a bit for the Israel Adesanya Robert Whitaker prediction. I do admit, you know, I got it wrong. Yeah. I get predictions wrong all the time. I'm still right more often than I'm wrong. And my actual rate, my record is actually better than most, but it's still not great. Everyone doesn't really have a good record in MMA when it comes to predictions. And that fight, yes, I was wrong. The things I was saying that Whitaker has to do in that fight, he didn't really do. So he came out there in an approach that I didn't expect. I didn't expect him to fight the way he was fighting, but that was his decision. You know, I can't predict the way he's going to fight. And Adesanya is getting better. And that is something that's very hard to put into an analysis. It's really hard to make a pre-fight breakdown because of that. A pre-fight breakdown is very much like a prediction. Instead of predicting the outcome of the fight, it's predicting how they're going to come into the fight, which can actually even be harder than predicting the winner. Because now all the tendencies, all the techniques come into this fight, they can all change. And the progression of Adesanya is also hard to predict, especially coming off a war with Kelvin Gastelum, and that can actually amp up the progression. We just don't know until fight night, and it looks like he is getting better. He's only 30 years old. Decent experience in MMA, 18-0, but the progression rate is at a high, man. So yeah, I did get that wrong. I do admit it. But a lot of people are putting so much stock into predictions when the sport is unpredictable in nature. And I just want to go out and say that. All your favorite YouTubers, all your favorite fighters, all your favorite coaches, all your favorite media members, they're all going to get predictions wrong. It just always happens. I've seen them all. Chill Sonnen was the first meme for terrible predictions and then he kind of stopped doing them consistently. He was doing them a lot more consistent back in the day. And then he kind of is only doing the main events time to time. Kenny Florian does predictions all the time, and he is the new meme of terrible predictions, right? For me, I put out predictions all the time. I would say like 95% of the cards, I put on predictions, and I predict all the fights. Because I don't really care. A lot of people shy away from predictions because they keep getting them wrong and they get the backlash from the fans. I don't really care too much about it because even when the fights are going on, I don't think about the predictions. I don't think about who I picked. I'm actually thinking about the fight itself. I'm very much looking forward to the techniques involved and what unfolds. That's what I'm focused on and what I'm learning and the entertainment, all that stuff, all the things involved that makes an MMA fight great. That's what I'm focused on. So when it comes to predictions, people ask me, if you keep getting backlash, why you keep making predictions? Well, one, they're fun, right? If you see my early content before I was making predictions consistently, I said before that my predictions are not for the picks. My predictions are more for fun and pre-fight analysis rather than who I think is actually going to win. Because back in the day, some of you probably remember, I used to pick the guy that nobody thought would win all the time just because. I would even say, I think he's going to win, but I'm just going to go with this guy. I'm trying to make it a little bit more serious these days. And I'll try to actually pick who I think is going to win. But I know that fighter that I pick can lose at any given moment. It's not someone to put your house on or something like that or bet on with everything you have because upsets happen all the time. So I'm still always going to make predictions. I'm still going to make them because it's fun. You know, it makes the fight week and actual the event a lot more exciting to look forward to. Because even though I'm picking someone, a lot of people who think I'm wrong, they like to pick the opposite. And it creates kind of a competitive thing. You know, I love that. It's healthy for the community. It's fun for the community. But it's just some people are taking it a little bit too seriously. Like, if you get a fight wrong, they just want to bag on you for like a week. Like, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so. It's like, okay, you told me so. But those people are usually the ones that aren't putting out predictions, right? Until you put on predictions, write them down. Write down all your predictions every single fight week. And see over time how many times you're right. And I guarantee everyone's going to be wrong a lot more than they thought they would have. And because I don't put that much stock into the actual picks that I put out there, I am one of the only ones that consistently puts out predictions all the time. And even though my record is a pretty good record compared to even the top guys at Topology or many other MMA prediction websites or people on Twitter, stuff like that, there's obviously people with better records, of course. But my record is actually pretty good as it is, which I'm actually kind of surprised throughout the years. 
It's just lately I've been getting some fights wrong. There was that stretch where I had like four or five fight cards and I was getting all the fights right. So this stuff happens sometimes. There are cards where I got all the fights wrong. You know, I predicted fights that nobody expected. I predicted Holly Holm to knock out Ronda Rousey within three rounds. I predicted Conor McGregor to knock out Eddie Alvarez in the second round. I predicted Michael Bisping to knock out Luke Rockhold in the second fight. But some of the worst ones I had, Joanna and Jessica Andrade. I thought Andrade was going to win. She got completely decimated. This one, Robert Whitaker and Israel Adesanya. Obviously, I've gotten plenty of fights wrong. And like I said before, that's just shows that the upsetting factor of MMA is larger than anything else, larger than any other sport. And that is why you have greater rewards potentially when you go and bet on these fights. And mybookie.ag has the best lines and best sports book, period. Precise grappling, technical takedowns, heavy handed knockouts, savvy striking, experience. There's so much involved. There's nothing else like MMA, and there's no better way to make fights even more exciting than to bet on them. Don't forget where you're betting is just as important as who you're betting on. So, regardless, of whether you're betting on MMA or NFL football, mybookie.ag is the best business and they've got it all. I wouldn't be telling you guys to bet with them if they weren't the best. Do the smart thing. If you're going to bet on this football season, bet with mybookie. If you're the kind of guy that likes to bet a little and win a lot, try a parlay. If by some chance all your picks come through, you'll multiply your winnings. And no matter how you bet, the NFL season is the best time of the year with also amazing UFC fights up until the end of this year. Join now and MyBookie will double your first deposit. Use promo code WEASEL to activate the offer. That's promo code W-E-A-S-L-E. Visit MyBookie.ag today. You play, you win, you get paid. And now let's go to the questions here. We're going to start with the most liked comment. Now, for those who don't know, if you want to ask me a question, you can uh, ask me under my community tab on my YouTube page. Usually on uh, Sundays or Mondays, I will post questions for podcasts or something like that. And you just reply your questions under there. The comments with the most likes do get read first. Or if Twitter is more convenient for you, you could tweet me a question. My Twitter handle is under every single video. Or you can go on Twitter. The handle is at the weasel. T-H-A, not E. T-H-A-W-E-A-S-L-E. And make sure to hashtag those tweets, MMA meeting, like you'll see later on in this podcast. So we're going to start with Danny D. If Habib ever loses, how do you think he'll react in the octagon? Let's say one for tap out, knockout, or decision. I think he'll take it pretty hard. Because if you've ever seen that video where he loses in Sambo, he does get pretty emotional. He does take it pretty hard. It was only a decision loss. You know, it was on points. Now, if he goes out there and gets knocked out or submitted, I would have to think that if he gets... uh. Probably submit it, it'll be worse for him, maybe. But knockout losses are always, like, the worst, you know. I think no matter how he loses, he will probably take it a little bit hard. And probably not as hard as he did in Sambo, because he's a little bit more mature. But yeah, immediately he might get a little bit emotional out there. Eventually, when he gets interviewed, he'd probably be well. Say some encouraging things, probably something like that. And uh, give all the credit to his opponent. And then we go to Cody Russell at UFC 243. Did Adesanya just improve his defense? Or was Whitaker more sloppy than in previous fights? It's a mix of both, but it's really hard to say because it did look like Adesanya didn't show everything he had in his arsenal. It looked like it was just so simple for him. He showed pretty much what he usually does, but with really good timing. I mean, maybe his timing for Whitaker, his preparation was on point that night, and it just made it seem like his defense was at all-time great. Whitaker was a little bit sloppier, obviously, right? But I think that sloppiness did come with him missing so often. Right? He was missing power punching. And when you miss a power shot, you are going to lunge around. And that is something new for Whitaker. He doesn't normally miss as often as he missed against Adesanya. And whenever you miss punches that are committed to knock the opponent out, you are going to look a bit sloppy out there. So I would say Adesanya's defense, as well as maybe Whitaker's approach, made it look sloppy. But Adesanya's defense may have improved, obviously, through the training and stuff like that. And then the next question, Matt Cruz. Going through the divisions, who has the weakest chin in each of them? Thanks for the videos, Weasel, and I hope your mom has a speedy recovery. Thank you so much, man. Again, I thank you guys so much for your, your support, man. It means a lot to me. I told her about it, and she was really happy about it. She doesn't really get this whole thing yet. She doesn't really get the whole YouTube thing and internet stuff. She barely knows how to use the internet these days. And I told her about it, and she was still, like, really happy and really thankful. But uh, the weakest chin in each division, so... Alistair Overeem, Luke Rockhold. Middleweight's pretty hard. I would either say Chris Wyman or Derek Brunson. But Wyman's going up to uh, 205, so I'd probably say Derek Brunson at this point. Then I say Stephen Thompson, who likely has really good chins, or fighters with really good chins. Maybe Kevin Lee. Everybody else has an insane chin. Man, same thing with Featherweight. A lot of guys with really good chins. Maybe Hanato Moicano at this point. Bantamweight's Thomas Almeida. Really hard to gauge at Featherweight because a lot of these guys just don't get knocked out or even stunned ever. 
And then the women divisions, again, it's really hard to see. The Milkman. Habib has publicly stated that he will not consider moving up to welterweight. Could it be because he is threatened by the welterweight size? Maybe he might not be able to maul them like he does to the lightweights because of how much bigger they are. Or could it be because the elite welterweights have better wrestling than the lightweights? Colby Usman Tyron, do you think he doesn't want to risk losing his undefeated record? Or is he just being loyal to the lightweight division? Also, if he did move up, which welterweights do you think will give him his first loss? Thanks. So interesting question. So pretty much, what is the motive? Why doesn't Habib move up? I think it's just to stay that lightweight. I think eventually, if he wants to, if he's clean out the division, or he moved up to 30-0, beat everybody he wanted to beat, then he might consider moving up to welterweight, because he has talked about it before, right? When he was bigger and had all that size on him, before he caught all this weight, before he lost all this weight naturally, he did talk about before moving up to welterweight. And I don't think he's scared or threatened by their size or anything like that, because if he wanted to, he can get up to about their size as well, right? Habib walks around at just under 200 probably, or at least he used to. And if he wants to move up to welterweight, he can get up to like 200 pounds. Easily he can do that. And if he does that, he's bigger than a lot of welterweights. Not all of them, because I know Tyron Woodley weighs like 205 pounds when he walks around, and Kamar Usman weighs like 190, so Habib will be bigger than a lot of those guys. It's just loyal to the lightweight division. He wants to just be competitive and clean out the division and not do the trend, not follow the trend, not do what Connor was doing. I think he wants to do his own thing. I think the fact that Connor actually went up to lightweight from featherweight, I think his pride may get in the way of him moving up the same way Connor did. Maybe he thinks, oh, I'm not like Connor. I'm not going to do anything Connor did. I'm going to do my own legacy. When he like talks about it, he's probably like, Oh, Connor moved up? I'm not moving up. Something like that, you know what I'm saying? And uh, maybe eventually one day he does it. And who will give him his first loss at welterweight? I think Usman's a very hard fight for him. I don't think they'll ever fight each other because they're friends. Um, But I think Usman may give him his first loss. I think Colby's a hard fight for him, but I do think he beats Colby. When I look at the ranks, I think Usman may be the only guy that can beat Khabib. Because if I think about it, like, Woodley will get smothered. Colby eventually probably gets submitted or beat on the ground. Masvidal will get controlled. Edwards will get controlled. RDA will get controlled. Nate Diaz will get smashed. Ponzinibbio, a threat. He's dangerous, but I don't think he'll stop the constant takedowns and stuff. Darren Till will be a hard fight. Darren Till will actually be a hard fight for him because Darren Till has really good takedown defense. And Habib doesn't have the striking capabilities like other guys do. I don't think he has the power, but we have to see him up at welterweight to see if he does have that kind of power too knock out Darren Till if things get dicey. Yeah, so I'd say Darren Till is probably the second hardest fight so far. Steven Thompson gets controlled, I think. Damian Maya gasses out and cannot strike with Habib. Ben Askren gets outstruck easily. Anthony Pettis gets smalled. Robbie Lawler gets controlled. Vicente Luque gets controlled. Neil Magny gets smashed. Usman, I think, is the only guy that can do it. And I think Darren Till is a hard fight. He can do it, but the chips are stacked against him. And then we go to Adam 2002. How, quote-unquote, actually... Good was prime BJ Penn. He was good for his time. You know, when he fought guys like Chen Spalver, who is extremely underrated in the world of MMA, right? When we're talking about the greatest lightweights of all time, Jens Spalver never lost his belt. I believe he had two title defenses or something like that. He never lost his belt. He had a dispute with his contract and left the UFC or something like that. And he came back not the same. But he did beat Jens Pulver. He beat a good Diego Sanchez who was much bigger than him. You know, Kenny Florian was talked about back then. He beat a lot of those tough one guys who were around his generation. And for that generation, which was not strong, let's be honest here, the debut of the lightweight division, the early primitive lightweight division was not strong. And BJ Penn was a big component in making that division pop. Even though it never got to the popularity of the light heavyweight division, he started it and he kind of kept it around after the UFC cut it, right? When BJ Penn wanted to fight a lightweight again, they brought it back and they kept it and now it's the best division in MMA. So skill-wise, BJ Penn was okay. He was a good boxer. He had amazing Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He had amazing takedown defensive game, but that's it. He had no kicks. He didn't defend kicks. He had no footwork, no movement, didn't cut off opponents well. If you got past his guard, if you got into like side control and stuff like that, he had a harder time to uh, stop anything the opponent was doing against him. He had a very good guard off his back, but that was really the only position he was extremely dangerous or extremely efficient at. On top, he was a nightmare, but he didn't have a takedown game. So his only way of getting on top of you is knocking you down or sweeping you from his guard or something. He was good. I always say he's probably a top five lightweight of all time, but I'd probably say he's on the lower end of that. Maybe number five. He could probably be number six. I would have to say Khabib and Tony are number one and two. After that, you put in, what, Anthony Pettis, RDA, Benson Henderson, and Frankie Edgar. I think they're all better than BJ Penn. Because when you look at the greatest or how good fighters actually were, you have to scale them to their era. You can't scale them to fighters today because then Chuck Liddell's nobody. You got to scale them to 
their generation and then compare them with fighters that skill to their own generation. And that's how you kind of get this whole thing. Stylistically, he was okay. He had a good style back then. He was like a two-dimensional fighter, good boxing, good jiu-jitsu. His biggest enemy was himself because he didn't train that well. He didn't do what he had to do back then. He was kind of lazy, it seemed like, with his training. But when he came out there and fought, he brought everything out there. He's kind of like a Mark Hunt, right? Mark Hunt talked a lot about how he hated training, but he loved fighting. And it costed him for a long time. It costed BJ Penn almost his whole career. There was a point where he was doing really well. He was training very well. He was training with the best guys. And he had that streak going on. But maybe his success told him that he didn't need to train. Maybe he was just that much better than everybody else. And he came out there, fought guys like Frankie Edgar, had a hard time. Fought GSP, had a hard time. Fought Matt Hughes a couple times, had a hard time. And then we go to Ahmed Abraham. Do you think Max Holloway will suffer the same phase Chris Weidman after three title defenses and loses to Volkanovski? Or do you believe Holloway can endure this new breed of talent and continue reigning? I have a feeling, I don't know if you guys have it too. I have a feeling Holloway's going to lose very soon. I don't know if it's going to be the Volkanovski. I don't know if it's going to be the Zabit. I don't know if it's going to be the Jose Aldo or something. I don't know who it's going to be to. But I have a very strong feeling Holloway's going to lose eventually. And I have a strong feeling it might be either Volkanovski or Zabit. It's one or the other. I don't think he makes it past those two. Right? He might beat Volkanovski, have a very hard fight, and then he might lose to Zabit right after. Something like that. He might get to the fourth out defense or something like that and lose. I just don't think he's going to last that much longer. And stylistically, Volkanovski and Zabit are hard fights. Volkanovski brings that aggressive, physical, powerful style with good wrestling to another level. What Frankie Edgar and Chad Mendes brought to the game, Volkanovski is on another level with that. He's like the next breed of that style. How does that do against Holloway's striking? Well, Frankie didn't do that well. Does Volkanovski have the kind of power and the speed and the wrestling mixing up with the power shots? Does he have that game that can maybe disrupt Holloway's game a little bit? That's all you need. Just disrupt Holloway's momentum just here and there and it's a completely different fight because of Holloway's style how he builds on momentum more than any other fight I've ever seen before and I think Zabit is his nightmare matchup I think Zabit is a very hard fight for Holloway first two rounds I think Zabit trumps Holloway I just think the third fourth and fifth if Zabit can't get that pacing under control and the cardio under control Holloway will probably dominate especially the fourth and fifth rounds I think if he fights Zabit the third round is going to be the deciding round. And then we go to Kagan Bagirov. Hey, Weasel, love your stuff. Every time I'm featuring one of your podcasts, I save the video. Nice, man. I mean, you asked some really good questions. So you have been on this quite a few of times. Keeping the questions consistently really good is a great thing. Seeing as Habib will retire soon and Ferguson is inching away from his physical prime, who do you think is going to be at the top of the heap of the lightweight division after those two are gone? Is it going to be the best division in the UFC without the Eagle and El Kakui? If those two guys leave, I have a feeling it's not going to be the best, but I think it's going to be like number two. I think Welterweight will eventually top it. And I think Featherweight will eventually also probably just inch its way above the lightweight division. Because let's be honest, the reason why the lightweight division is so stacked, or at least looked at as so stacked, is because the top part of the lightweight division is so strong, as well as the bottom. It makes it look like the entire division is very hard to compete with. But... Why is the top so strong? Habib and Tony Ferguson are two of the best fighters in the world today. Pound for pound, whatever. Habib and Tony are some of the best fighters today. Some of the best fighters of all time. And they're fighting in the same division. They're the top two guys. Let's say those two guys leave. Who are at the top? You got Connor, Dustin Poirier, Justin Gaethje. It's a good list at the top, but now it's really lacking compared to Kamar Usman, Colby Covington, Tyron Woodley, Leon Edwards, Jorge Masvidal, right? Or... Max Holloway, Volkanovski, Jose Aldo, Brian Ortega, Frankie Edgar, Zabit, right? The competition doesn't really compare to those two anymore. So who's going to be at the top of the heap? It's probably going to be Dustin Poirier. Poirier might become the champion. Conor McGregor might fight him. Maybe Conor wins. Whatever happens there, I think those two are going to be the best. I think Justin Gaethje is probably just a notch below those two. And then you have guys like uh, maybe Islam Makhachev eventually becomes the champion, right? That would be Habib's hope. That would be everybody's hope at that point because Islam Akshav is very similar to Khabib with a better striking game. I won't say he's a better grappler than Khabib is, so maybe Islam Akshav becomes the champion one day and maybe Gregor Gillespie does some wondrous things and becomes a top-ranked opponent for Islam Akshav. Maybe something like that happens. But this division is going to constantly grow because prospects are just non-stop coming up to this division. And the truth is, I think Khabib and Tony Ferguson are probably going to retire around the same time because Ferguson's 36 years old or 35 and Khabib is probably a couple fights away from losing motivation. So my prediction when these two are going to retire, I think Khabib and Tony Ferguson are probably going to retire by the beginning of 2021. 
So Habib and Tony are supposed to fight at least around March or April, something like that, in Russia most likely, which is what Habib wants. And I know Ferguson is going to be down for that. He's going to want to fight in Russia. And once that fight happens, whatever happens afterward, most likely uh, GSP is going to fight the winner, especially if Habib wins. And that fight's probably going to happen in like Madison Square Garden or something in November. Maybe after that, Tony fights Connor. Something like that. That fight happens maybe in December, you know, somewhere later in the year as well. Habib and Tony probably think about their careers, think about future opponents, stuff like that. Habib is probably going to retire first. Ferguson's going to get one more fight, win the belt, and then retire after. So that fight might happen in the beginning of 2021. Ferguson retires with the belt. Habib retires undefeated. Two of the greatest lightweights of all time. Now the division has to progress again. And now we go to Pumpy FN. How would Deontay Wilder do in the UFC with one to two years of MMA training? Not well. Kicking defense, wrestling defense, grappling defense, BJJ defense, kicking offense, different distance work, try to work with the small gloves. I know he got to the top of boxing very quickly. He got into the Olympics like six months training or something. So maybe going to MMA, he can pick up on things pretty quickly. So one to two years is probably not a long stretch if you take that kind of perspective. And it is the heavyweight division, let's be honest. To be a heavyweight, you don't need as much technique if you have the power. Deontay Wilder can knock out anybody in the world with one shot, even in MMA. One shot and it's probably over. He has the reach. He has the size. He might even go to 205 though. That's the thing. He walks around like, what, 220 at the most? And that's not even a big 205-er. He's a long and tall 205-er, but he's not big. But maybe he sticks out heavyweight. Maybe he thinks, what I could do in the boxing world against these 260-pound men, I could do the same thing in MMA. But here's the difference. When wrestling gets involved, how is his strength going to be? You know, if he's going to be 210 pounds versus Stipe Miocic, who's like 240, versus DC, who's going to be like 245, versus... Curtis Blades is like 260. He's not going to fend off those takedowns. No way. Even Francis Agano will take him to the ground. You know what I'm saying? That's when the size will matter. The size doesn't matter as much in boxing. But because the wrestling's involved, the grappling's involved, the clinch work's involved, size will matter a lot more. And that's when Wilder will realize maybe I should go to 205. I do think he can get some good knockouts, but I don't think he'll be a top ring guy. Kenanier versus top five middleweights. So him versus Kelvin Gastelum, I think he does really well. I think it's actually a great... Actually... Whoa, Jerry Kennanier versus Kelvin Gastelum. Just think about that fight. Two guys with heaters in their hands. They don't go for takedowns. They kick sometimes. They're known for their boxing, known for their power. Both fast punchers as well and really precise punchers. I always say Kennanier has more fluidity to his strikes, a little bit more versatile with his punches. Whereas Kelvin Gastelum has a uniform style that tends to work on everybody for some reason. And how's Kennanier do against that? Ooh, that's a good fight. I would actually say Kenanier beats Gaslam, to be honest. I think Gaslam will run into a couple shots, and I think Kenanier is so composed under striking power, he probably won't have that much trouble defending Gaslam's shots. So I think he catches Gaslam on his way in against Romero. Romero destroys him, let's be honest here. If Romero wants to wrestle, he will take down Kenanier at will and just ground upon him beyond belief. Against Paul Costa, that would be a great fight as well, man. Very similar to the Kelvin Gaslam fight, but Costa's a bigger guy than Gaslam is and can meet something close to Kenanier's size and power because Kenanier has heavyweight power. I mean, he came down from heavyweight and it just seems like he carried the power with him. Crazy. Every time he touches someone once, it's over. And Costa has that similar thing as well. I actually think Kenanier may be more powerful punch for punch, but Costa does bring better cardio, better speed in his punches, and unwillingness to back off his opponent that Kenanier will appreciate in that kind of fight. I don't know who would win that. I think it's a pick em fight. I think it's a toss-up because Costa is more defensively irresponsible. And you do not want to be defensively irresponsible against Kenanier. Because one shot and it's over. Kenanier is a lot more responsible than his defense. Even though he's a little bit more aggressive than your usual fighter who is responsible. I think Whitaker kind of picks him apart. Kenanier is a little bit too stationary of a target for Whitaker. Whitaker kind of just blitz him down relatively easily. But he just has to really watch out when he's exiting away. Because Kenanier does have good timing in his punches. And his hooks are devastating, man. So Whitaker's only problem is exiting. But in terms of just blitzing down and finding his target, I think Kenanier will probably be in the way too many times to the point where he gets dropped. And then it gets Israel Adesanya. I think Adesanya picks him apart. Although I would say Kenanier has a harder time against Adesanya than he does against Whitaker. Because Whitaker, if he engages Kenanier at any given moment, that's when Kenanier is going to try to counter him. Probably do something where Romero was doing in their rematch. Wait for him to get on the inside and try to intercept him with shots as Whitaker's trying to make an angle out of there. And then Aldo versus top 15 bantamweights. Okay, I'm going to say who are the hard fights for him. 
I do think Segudo is a hard fight, but I think Josie Aldo beats him. I think Marlon Moraes would be a very hard fight, but I think Aldo getting tagged a couple times in there will awaken that beast like it did in the Jeremy Stevens fight. And I think Marlon Moraes will crumble under that pressure and that power. I think Corey Sanhigo will bring a lot of problems to Jose Aldo. He can possibly beat him because of all the movement, the length, the unpredictability. Jose Aldo might be caught in the headlights in that kind of fight. Same thing if he fights Dominic Cruz, but we got to see where Cruz is in his career. Everybody else, I think, gets beat pretty handily. I would say the hardest fight for him is Corey Sanhagen at this point. Far more than Henry Cejudo will be. Because Cejudo's takedowns will be completely thwarted. And what he's going to do is strike with Jose Aldo. The biggest thing coming to that division is, of course... How does Jose Aldo transition? He's a big guy. He has a hard time cutting to 145. At least in the past he did. Will his chin be there? Will his power be there? We have no idea. Look what happened to Michael Johnson when he moved down to featherweight. Now he's finally moving back up to lightweight because he lost all of his power. I don't know what happened. He was a dynamic puncher at lightweight. Knocking out so many guys. Knocked out Dustin Poirier easily. Stunned Justin Gaethje. A guy who has a granite chin. He comes on the featherweight and just can't hurt anybody for some reason. And the same thing can happen to Jose Aldo. And then the next question, Big Dad Braden. Who do you think will be the champion in each division in two years time? Okay, so I'll go Francis Ngannou, mainly because DC is going to retire. And I think uh, Stipe might be in the later end of his career, if not retire by then. And I think Ngannou would be able to take him out or just take the bell from anybody else. Once Stipe and DC are gone, nobody's beating Ngannou. He's already actually beating everybody besides Derek Lewis. And I think Lewis gets put to sleep out there. Light heavyweight, I would probably say Johnny Walker. I think Jones will get beat. That was my prediction. I think Jones gets beat within two years. No later than two years. I think Jones will lose. And I think Walker might be the guy. At middleweight, they'll stick with Adesanya. I see him actually having a few tough fights out there. I think Paulo Costa might be tougher than people think. I think he still gets past him. I think he'll eventually fight Yuval Romero. And I think the old age will finally hit Romero. But he will still be one of Adesanya's toughest fights. But I actually do think Adesanya finds a way to finish Romero. If it's a prime Romero, I do think Romero would beat him. But if it's not, he is like 43 years old right now. I think Adesanya will find that chin and crack him and drop him. He'll fight Jared Cannonier. I think it'll be an easier fight than the others. I think he'll put some kind of a spectacle out there. Maybe a couple other fights out there. I think he'll be the champion in 2021. Ooh, welterweight's a hard one. I think that championship is going to change hands constantly. So what I see happening is I see Ponzinibbio becoming champion, but I think he loses. I think he's going to be the one that beats either Colby Covington or Usman. Whoever wins that fight, I think Ponzinibbio will eventually fight the winner of that because I think the winner of Mazdal and Nate Diaz is going to lose. I think they're going to lose to Colby or Usman. And I think Ponzinibbio is going to be the guy to beat the champion. But I think he loses to somebody. And I just don't know who it would be. You know what? I'm going to say Leon Edwards. I'm going to be a little bit risky here. I'm going to say Leon Edwards. I think Edwards beats Ponzinibbio for the belt. Quote that. Put that down. Let's see if it happens. Lightweight, I'm going to say Tony Ferguson. I'm going to say Tony wins the belt after Khabib retires. And that's when he'll be champion. Featherweight, I'm going to say Zabit. Bantamweight, I'm going to say Song Yadong. I think he's going to be like a number two or number three contender by the end of next year and then win the belt. Going into 2021. Then flyweight, oh, it's hard to say it won't be Henry Cejudo. It's really hard. I think the only guy left to beat, I think he beats Joseph Benavides, but I think the only guy left to beat to really prove that nobody else is left is if he beats Davis and Figueiredo. And I just don't know how that fight's going to go. Because Figueroa doesn't have the best takedown defense, but Cejudo's not going to strike with him, right? Cejudo's striking style is very similar to Davis and Figueroa's, but Figueroa's another level. More power, more speed, longer, fights at a longer range as well. Incredible precision. I just don't know, man. It, it would be like Cejudo dominates or Figueroa catches him. That's how the fight will go. But I'll stick with Cejudo keeping that belt in 2021. Woman's bantamweight is probably going to be a disaster by that time because I think Nunes retires. And if Nunes retires, anyone could win the belt. I think Holly Holm retires. I think Jermaine Durandamy might retire by then. I think Pena retires. I think Pennington might retire. I'll probably say Caitlin Vieira will probably become the champion if not Aspen Ladd wins it. Or maybe Nico Montano one day. You never know. Woman's flyweight. I'm going to say Valentina Shevchenko. Woman's strawweight. This is hard. I'm going to say Rose wins the belt again. And then we go to Dino Beckage. Number one, do you smoke weed? I do not, actually. A lot of people think I do, but I don't. Number two, what do you think about the video where Habib mocks a homeless man? Yeah, that was kind of tasteless. I don't know the whole context to it, but it looks like it was happening. Maybe he gave him money to do the push-ups and stuff and looked like they were mocking him and stuff. The mockingness was just not 
necessary at all. It was really disrespectful. And and yeah, it makes it hard for some people to be fans of Habib when they see that kind of stuff. Kind of looking down on people like that and just not good. Number three, if Stevie beats DC and Ganu and Jones, is he the GOAT? Yeah, I would probably say so. I mean, he has an argument to it. Greatest heavyweight of all time and goes and beats a light heavyweight champion. So he gets three tall defenses back to back. Yeah, that's a good achievement. And the competition beating is crazy. So you can make an argument for it. I won't say 100% because GSP is pretty high up there, man, with his credentials and stuff. And if Habib is able to get some good wins on the meantime, now he's in the discussion. He would definitely be like top three, top five. Number four, would you rather get a BJ from Cyborg or get punched by Nganu? I'd take the former. <laughs> what? I think anybody would, right? At least there'll be some enjoyment, you know? But both of those would be pretty rough in different ways, man. You'd be pissing blood for a couple weeks, or you get permanently concussed or something. And then we go to Colby, the king of Brazil, Covington. Do you think Anderson Silva is taking PEDs in his prime? In his last fights at 40 years old plus, he still looked really good. He's not as good anymore because of his age, not because he's quote-unquote clean. Also, his body always stayed the same physical, unlike some other fighters, but that's not the best proof. Call me crazy, but I think Anderson Silva was clean until the leg injury. Yeah, you could be right. There's no way to really prove that he was on stuff before. Because, yeah, he always looked the same. If you saw a drastic difference in body structure, like uh, Vitor Belfort or something like that, then you would notice, right? Speculation, a lot of people think Silva's on stuff the whole time, but there is good reason, good logic to believe that he only took stuff after the leg injury just for, like, I don't know, confidence, security reasons, probably insecure that his leg would break again. But here's the thing, man. Silva was skilled right? The steroids is not going to help your precision and timing. In the actual fight, it can help you progress it faster than other fighters because uh, the steroids will allow you to train a lot more and a lot often with little rest. But his skills in the cage were so unmatched. It was crazy. And there's probably a lot of guys he fought that were also on the gear. So it's not like he was training far ahead of anybody else because he was on steroids and nobody else was. So... We all know Dan Henderson was on TRT before. I don't know how long he was on it, but there was a point in time where he was. Vitor was on stuff before. Back in the day, it was the wild, wild west, man. And even today where he is quote-unquote clean, at least that's what we speculate now, he still has really good techniques. He's still really skilled. He gives everybody problems. He gives Adesanya some problems. And we're talking about the middleweight champion of the world right now, who's undefeated. We're talking about 40-plus-year-old Anderson Silva able to do that. That must mean back in the day, he was still so good. To be able to fight with guys today the way he is, clearly over the hill back in the day he had to have been just insanely skilled to the point where we don't know how much steroids if he was on it affected him and really quick by wrestler kickboxer does barboza kick faster than flyweights and strawweights yes 100 look at the speed put them side by side i guarantee barboza i could probably make a video on it i'm pretty sure barboza kicks faster than anybody else how does paul felder do against connor iquinta cowboy geishi i think he loses to connor I think he beats Iaquinta or it becomes like a draw or something. It's a very close fight. I think he loses the Cowboy and I think he loses the Gaethje. How does Barboza do against Cowboy, Connor, Iaquinta, Hernandez, Masvidal, and Yair? Barboza loses the Cowboy. It'll be a close fight, I think, though. He loses the Connor. Ah, oh, the Iaquinta fight can go either way, man. Because Iaquinta could run into something or if he puts enough pressure, he catches Barboza and starts taking him to the ground and stuff. I'll stick with Iaquinta. He beats Hernandez. He loses the Masvidal. And he beats Yair. And Alpha Sniper, please do a What Really Happened video on Habib vs. Bear Wrestling Match. Haha, <laughs> that would be funny, right? It'll be like the next uh, Robin Black. He does that stuff. It's so weird. He does like breakdowns of animal fights and whatever it is. It's weird. Entertaining, though. Now let's go to the Twitter questions. We're going to start with AdJCDulos1. How do you think Gaethje does against Connor, given that he lost to Dustin Netty and they lost to Connor? Well, MMA math doesn't make sense. You can't go by that. You can't go by this guy lost to these two, therefore the guy that beat those two will beat that guy. You can't go by that. I do think Connor beats Justin Gaethje because he is more precise. Gaethje will probably run into some shots that he shouldn't be running into, and Connor is just too much of a sniper out there. They both don't have great gas tank. I would say Gaethje has a better gas tank than Connor does, but he doesn't pace himself like Connor does. Connor can pace himself and still gas out. It's weird. Geishi, he just puts on such a crazy pace that he gasses himself out. Um, but here's the thing. Geishi's not that kind of a striker. The only way he can beat Connor is if he wrestles, and I don't think he'll do it. The fight will be so high profile, he won't go out there and just quote-unquote bum everybody out by going out there and wrestling out of nowhere. Right, he wants to make it a brawl. He wants to knock out Connor. Mentally going into the fight, it would be the wrong thing. And I think Connor eventually catches him and knocks him out probably third roundish. But MMA math doesn't work. 
Then we go to at Pleft9. How can Tony deal with Habib's hand fighting game? It doesn't leave a lot of room for Tony's loose creativity. It depends where. It depends where he's hand fighting with him. Because if Tony's on his back and Habib's in his guard and Habib's trying to hand fight with him or control the wrist or something, Tony can land elbows over the top. And that's the thing. Nobody throws elbows at Habib, especially in the clinch, on the ground, whatever. If someone's grabbing your wrists, for instance, for an example, you can roll over your elbows and catch the opponent. And that's something Tony does. So at a distance, in the clinch, whatever, even if he's trying to hand fight with Tony, Tony could potentially find some elbows over the top, but he has to be in the right position. So if Tony's against the cage and Habib has that weird position on him where he's kind of on top of him, breaking down his posture, breaking down his posts and stuff, and hand fighting from there, maybe gift wraps him and stuff, yeah, Tony can't do much from that. But in certain positions, Tony's a lot more creative or a lot more dangerous than other opponents that Habib's ever fought against, even hand fighting. Then we go to add Darwin Naledi. How is UFC not hyping up the fact that Cleo Roundtree fights this weekend? Okay, so this is a question from before. After this supernova-like performance in his last bout, and then jumping on the JRE show afterward. Well, I guess we know why now, right? Here's the thing about Cleo Roundtree. So this is a good question I wanted to answer because I had some things to say about this fight that he had with uh, Kutilaba. I wasn't one of those guys that was shooting Cleo Roundtree through the stars. Yes, he had a great performance against Eric Anders. He looked great in his Muay Thai. But his striking was never a problem. It was never something he needed to work on with complete focus. The focus had to be on his takedown defense, had to be on his ground game. And that still was not addressed. That is why, okay, he went from dangerous striker to really dangerous striker. But your holes are still there. Your tendencies, your your defense is still open. Your striking is amazing. Nobody wants to strike with you. But your wrestling is still exposed. And in the Kutilaba fight... It showed it still is. Kutilaba is shown to be more of a striker in his MMA career. And he was able to take down Clear Roundtree like nothing and dominate him and TKO him eventually. So that was why I needed to see more from Clear Roundtree. Because everybody was so high, especially because Joe Rogan was hyping him up a lot because of his uh, Muay Thai and stuff like that. It looks so beautiful, right? And I know Joe Rogan's really into Muay Thai fights and watches them religiously. It's just hype. You got to see everything, right? I, got, I had to see his wrestling. That's why I wasn't willing to throw him up there yet going from good striker with non-existent grappling to great striker with non-existent grappling isn't going to do much for me so that's probably why they didn't hype him up too much they need to see him be a better contender a bigger fighter a real 205er or at least a more natural 205er like kutilaba if he went out there and beat that guy the way he beat eric andrews or something it would be a little bit different then we go to at 412 pit one so if kalago who's kalago Kalago beats Romero. You said he possibly slides up into the number one contender spot. Are you talking about Jared Kennanier? Because I know I said that about him. Okay, we'll say Jared Kennanier because I think that's who you're talking about. Kill a gorilla. Uh, it just seems like he probably didn't finish <laughs> finish his nickname. Yes, if he beats Romero, he's the number one contender, 100%. Beating Romero makes you a number one contender. <laughs> that's just how it goes. Oh, interesting question by at Nikola Jujak. What should you do against a fighter bigger and longer than you that's throwing a barrage of punches at you without stopping? Should I play rope dope or intercept all the love and support from Australia, mate? Shout out to Australia, man. You guys are some of the best fans and just best people involved in this sport. If they're doing that, they're going to gas themselves out. So... Don't try to intercept them. Don't try to come after them with power. First, you got to be very calm in this. You can't freak out. Because people who are inexperienced, when they see a bigger guy, they're automatically intimidated before anything happens. And from that, it builds into, oh, he's throwing punches at me. Now I'm covering up and I'm going down willingly. Well, you got to know your surroundings. Be very calm, composed. If the punches are coming, keep your hands up. Block the punches. Use good eyes, good reflexes. Avoid the punches as much as possible and know where you are. So let's say you are in an open space. If you're in open space, if you can see some counter shots in there, like quick ones, not with great power, but just like if he's coming in, he throws like a long jab and you could see that wind up in the right hand, orthodox stance, you can possibly throw in like a very swift, non-telegraph, just straightforward jab and duck under the haymaker, keep it. Bring your hand back to position so it blocks the punch. Just in case it nicks you or something, roll under and fade away and create space again. And now the bigger guy is going to come at you again, throw these big barrage of punches again. He's eventually going to gas out. Focus on defense. Do not get hit. If you find those intercepting shots just to disrupt the motion and the momentum, you can do that. Just quick punches. Quick punches. Nothing crazy. Not overhands, big left hook, something. Quick shots. Just these quick ones are enough to really stun them. So generally, the objective here is focus on defense until the bigger man gasses out. The goal is to get the guy to gas out and then capitalize afterward. So focus on your feet. Good form. Don't get off balance. Hands up at all times. 
They're most likely going to throw a jab a lot because you said they're longer. Probably establish a jab, parry those as you're moving backwards. You see the right hand come, you see the big left hook come. The fact that they're barrage on you, you can probably see the punches a lot better because they're going to be coming at long angles so you can react to those long arcs of those punches. Hands up at all times. If you're both an orthodox, parry that long jab, parry that long established jab with your right hand. Keep the left hand up at the same time. Move away from the right hand as well as blocking. And if you ever see the bigger guy taking breaks or let's say he barrages at you with those three or four or five big punches, you're moving away effectively. You're blocking them effectively, keeping a good poker face, laser focus on the guy, and he takes a sudden break. Immediately, you can make him pay with something. Like, show him that you're there. Show him it's not going to be as easy as you're going to blitz me down. That's just going to make you pay at the end, right? That's the kind of feeling you give them when you immediately attack back. Guys who usually barrage at you like that, especially if they're bigger, it can mean that they might be underestimating you, maybe because of your size just specifically. And if you're able to defend the barrages and answer back, let's say with a body jab, with a quick body jab or a quick jab in the face and then move back right afterward, keep a solid stance, you trick their psyche a bit. And then they start to change in the fight and they start thinking more. And that's when you get some of your opportunities. But that usually happens after the bigger guy starts gassing out a little bit, which makes it a lot harder for him. You are going to be at disadvantage because you did say fighter, right? So they're going to be skilled in some areas. It depends what they're skilled at. If they're just a striker, you could try to take them to the ground, right? If those big barrage of punches are coming and they're not a good grappler or wrestler at all, now it's a lot easier to deal with. You probably shoot in that jab and go under for the takedown. If they are a wrestler and they're throwing these shots, it's a lot easier to defend the shots and not get hit clean by them because they're mostly going to be wild. And you can defend them pretty easily. Stay away from any walls, circle away, use good footwork, compose, calm, all that stuff. And when they get tired, when they eventually lose their breath because of this constant aggression, that's when you put it on them a little bit more. Body jab. Bring it back really quick. See the reaction. Jab to the head. Fake on them. See their tendency. Oh, you see this? Now, jab our hand, left hook, and move back with the left hook. Stuff like that. Keep your hands up at all times. And then the last question by at ZHarkness62. Are leg kicks now the most effective strike in MMA, taking into account damage done and energy exerted slash counterability? Love your content. Hope your mom is okay. Thank you so much, man. Leg kicks are very effective, especially because of these calf kicks these days, man. And they do so much damage with just one. You only need one to do the damage that you want it to do. And it's incredibly hard to check and counter. The best way to counter or evade a calf kick is create distance. Because a calf kick doesn't go as far as a round kick to the thigh or round kick to the knee. Because it's going so much lower. The angle is low instead of horizontal. So it's a lot more vertical than it is horizontal compared to the other kicks. So distance has to be a little bit closer to land them. Other than that, man, it's more damaging than the other ones. You need a very low amount to do the damage that you want it to do. And they're like impossible to check. So yeah, the calf kick specifically is one of the most effective strikes in MMA right now. Crazy, right? And Benson Henderson was really like the first one else throwing those. It just didn't catch on when he was doing it. So that's the podcast, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. If you did, make sure to give it a like. Make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you're listening to the audio version of this. For some reason, I'm losing my voice. I have no idea what's happening. Um, So yeah, again, thank you guys so much for watching. Thank you guys so much for listening. And I'll see you in the next episode.